Uh, it's good to be with you guys here this evening. Uh, we're going to continue in our study of the book of Ruth. And uh, before we jump in, we're going to read the sermon, the, the, the scripture passage in the sermon. So before we do that, let's open up in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful to you for your loving kindness to us and for how you consistently show us your love and for how you continue to display evidences of your grace throughout our lives. As we study the, the book of Ruth tonight, as we understand uh, how you brought Ruth and, um, and Boaz together, we pray that uh, even though this is a familiar passage to many of us, that you would allow for us still to see the different ways that you've worked in the lives of your people, and even just teaching us how to, how to respond when we know what lies, or when we have a, an idea of uh, what might be ahead of us. And so, Father, we pray that you would be glorified, you would be honored as we study your word this evening. It's in your sons that we pray. Amen. Well, well usually when we think about the word hope, right, what do you think about? Hope is kind of a vague word. It can mean everything, but it can also mean nothing all at the same time. Right. More often than not, when we talk about our hopes, we're speaking about our dreams, what we would like to happen, what we wish could happen, what we desire to accomplish. That's usually what we talk about when we talk about hope. And yet, because it's a wish, because it's a dream, because it's a desire, sometimes our hopes tend to be out of grasp, out of reach. It could be nothing more than a wish or a dream. It could be nothing more than what you would want to happen in an ideal world. And then when you finally realize, when you finally run into reality, you realize that you actually can't do anything to accomplish your dream. Right? That, and that's, that's just the negative aspect of it, right? That's why hope can be nothing. At the same time, hope can be everything. Hope can drive all that you do. And when you think about hope in terms, of, uh, in terms of what you want to accomplish in life, right? That's what gets you up in the morning. And that's what gives you direction in terms of your life's path, right? And so in that sense, it could be everything. Now, despite this somewhat depressing sentiment about hope, that it can be everything but nothing all at the same time, we can have hope and have an expectant hope at that, depending on what we place our hope in. If the object of our hope is able to shift and change, then our hopes will also similarly shift and change. If, however, the object of our hope is concrete, it's based on something or someone that's steadfast and immovable. Then, even if the times shift, even if the circumstances shift, our hope will not be disappointed. Last week, we continued our study in the book of Ruth, and we looked at how God works through the ordinary to accomplish his purposes. In what looked like chance, God brought Ruth to Boaz and allowed for them to meet. And in what looked like chance, Boaz is a close family member who can help take care of Ruth and Naomi in their widowhood. 
God provides mightily for Ruth and Naomi so that where there was once darkness and uncertainty, there is now blessing and hope because they know for sure Yahweh is going to provide for them. But what should their response be to this hope? What comes next for them? Should they just sit at home and just wait for more blessings to come? Or do they need to do anything? Similarly for us, right? As those who also believe in God's sovereignty, how can we learn from Ruth and Naomi's response to God's hope? Do we also just sit around and wait for God's uh, plan to come about in our lives? Or do we have to do something? Well, this evening, we're, we hope to find that the answer to that um, as we observe three responses to God's provision of hope that teach us how to wait upon God. Three responses to God's provision that teaches us how to wait upon God. Our first response to God's provision is the response of anticipatory preparation. The response of anticipatory preparation. Now, in case you don't remember or you weren't here, the book of Ruth was written around the time of King David's reign, and it provided background for his rise to the throne. And since the story of Ruth unfolds during the darkness of the judges, this beautiful little love story shines like a diamond against a black backdrop to demonstrate that God has not abandoned his people. Sure, it looks really, really bad. Sure, the nation of Israel is, and when you look back, this story shows that God had not abandoned his people, that he was doing something even in the midst of the darkness. He worked through the details of the people's sin, of the people's rebellion, to bring his king to the throne. As we know from last week, the close of chapter 2 left us with a cliffhanger as we're wondering, what's going to happen to Ruth and Naomi? Sure, they have food because of the barley harvest and Boaz let Ruth stay for the wheat harvest as well. But what happens after that? Because, as we know, gleaning was basically a survival tactic. It was a survival job. You don't, do, you don't uh, live off of it. You're not trying to make a living out of it. There's no security that's there. And so, yes, they were provided for for a season, but how are they going to be after? And that's what we're trying to, to find out. So the question is, now what? Verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, that is Ruth, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? So somehow, or or, not sorry, not somehow, sometime after the wheat harvest ends, Naomi is speaking to Ruth. Right? She reveals that she's been thinking about how to take care of her daughter-in-law's long-term future. This word security can also be translated as rest. And it speaks of the security and peace that a woman could find under the care of her husband. Now, this is not to say that women could not take care of themselves. Because we know Ruth is pretty capable of taking care of herself. Right? She brought home anywhere between 60 to 100 pounds of, of barley home to Naomi. So she could take care of herself. Right? We know that. So this is not saying that women are helpless. Okay? Don't, don't read that into, into the text, right? But what we're seeing here is that in this patriarchal society, right, women don't have the same job security that men do, right? They weren't supposed to go out and go grab jobs. 
They were supposed to stay at home. They were supposed to take care of the things at home. They were supposed to work at home. And now we know from Proverbs 31 that the exemplary wife, who, by the way, some believe Ruth personifies, worked and provided well for her family. Right? She sold at the gate. She made stuff at home, and she sold things in the marketplace. So this is not saying that women can't provide for themselves and they couldn't take care of themselves, but rather what Naomi is recognizing is Ruth shouldn't have to do that. Right? Ruth needs security. She needs a husband who can take care of her once Naomi is gone. Because remember, too, there's land at stake. Right? There's family land. There's a farm. There's property that needs to be managed and taken care of. And that wasn't going to be something that Ruth was going to be able to do all on her own, especially if Naomi passed away. So we're, we're not saying that Ruth is helpless. We're not saying Naomi is helpless. But Naomi is preparing for a time when she will no longer be around. And, that, and, she, and also think about it this way, too. She doesn't want Ruth to be confined to a life of a widow when she's so young. She doesn't have to stay a widow. She can move forward. And so in an act of parental care, Naomi wants to make sure that Ruth, her daughter, will be sufficiently cared for in the future. And so she reveals her plan in verses 2 to 4. She says this, Now is not Boaz our kinsman with whose maids you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. It shall be, when he lies down, that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. So, drawing attention to Boaz's relationship to them again, Naomi says, hey, he's a kinsman. He's a close relative, and, and you'll notice that she doesn't identify him as a kinsman redeemer or as a redeemer. She's just actually using the word, a more general term, that could mean acquaintance at its very basic meaning, or it could mean relative. Right? So she's not saying he's going to be the one who's going to redeem you. He is not the uh, kinsman redeemer that we've heard thus far. He's just a relative, right? an acquaintance. And so that ought to get you wondering, why does, why does Naomi refer to Boaz in such broad terms? Because he is a close relative. He could technically help them when it comes to the land. So why is she calling Boaz just a relative or an acquaintance even? Well, it's hard to say, but perhaps the reason why she doesn't give him that label, kinsman redeemer, is because she knows that technically speaking, Boaz doesn't qualify. We'll find out a little later. Uh, but perhaps that's why she calls him just a relative. Um, however, because of his interest in helping Ruth and caring for her, he would certainly be a wonderful candidate to marry Ruth because, hey, without prompting, he took care of Ruth. And he took care of Ruth really, really well. So, again, we're not sure why Naomi refers to him in such general terms, but it's a likely reason. It's because of his care for her. Um, now, knowing that Boaz will probably not do much more at this point, at least in terms of us uh, trying to, to pursue Ruth, Naomi knows it's going to be up to her. It's going to be up to her and Ruth to respectfully initiate this conversation. So she tells Ruth to go visit Boaz after he's done separating the barley from the, from the chaff for the night. And uh, this process of winnowing, basically, you would take the crops 
that you had um, that you had in store. So mo- most likely, even though this is after the wheat harvest, uh, you've probably had to wait for the the, sh- the uh, rest of the plant, the stalk, to um, to dry up. Right? And so now, now that it's sufficiently dry, you can try and extract the grain from from the plant. And so what Boaz would do here on the threshing floor, it could be a flat place, kind of up on a ledge where a breeze could come through. What he would do is he would use like a little pitchfork and he would kind of sh- shuffle through, loosen it up, and then he would throw it up in the air. And the hope was that the gentle breeze would come through and it would take away that extra plant and leave just the grain. All right, so he's there working. All, and uh, typically the winds were better at night. So that's why Boaz is there towards the late afternoon and, and the nighttime because he's working over there. And so what uh, and this is after all the field, the field labor is done. Now, Naomi is telling Ruth to wash herself, anoint herself, put on her, uh, it says, best clothes, and go to that threshing floor where Boaz is that evening. And she most likely was working in the field during the day. So, you know, being told to, to, to go uh, take, a, take a shower and, and kind of uh, wash up a little bit, that's not unusual. It's not offensive. That's just kind of what Naomi wanted to do because she wanted her daughter she wanted her daughter to be at her best, right? This is, she knows that what she's asking Ruth to do is to propose marriage to Boaz. And so she wants her at her best. And that's especially important because Ruth was out in the field working, right? So, you know, washing, putting on perfumed olive oil so she smells nice, that would be, that would be essential. That word that translates uh, in, the, um, in the NASB, uh, and in some other translations, as best clothes or cloak, if you have the ESV, is actually a general word for a garment. It could refer to a man's clothing. It could refer to a woman's clothing. It's just a garment. It's just clothes. But I think what we're talking about, particularly in this case, is not just clothes in general, but the traditional clothes that would have been worn by a widow, a widow in mourning. So she's showing herself to be in mourning. Uh, Back in Genesis 38, Tamar, she was the widow of Ur, and uh, she was was wearing a traditional widow's garment, and then when she decides that she needs to go out and and, uh, raise up a descendant for her husband, she takes off her widow's garment, and she puts on a shawl. And so um, that word, though, when it comes to um, when it comes to Tamar's widow's garments, are the same, is the same word that's being used here to describe Ruth's clothes, the ones that she's supposed to put on. So Naomi is telling Ruth, hey, it's time to move on. I know that uh, you, you love your husband, but it's time to move on. The time for mourning is over. You don't need to stay with me in mourning. You can go on and, and marry for your sake, for your security. So Naomi is embracing this relationship with her daughter-in-law, which is really great because initially when she came back into the city, right, what did she say? She said, I've come home with nothing. And Ruth's like, um, hi, I'm right here. <laughs> I come home empty-handed. And, and Ruth's like, yes, uh, but what about me? Right? And, and, and so what we see here is Naomi is embracing Ruth as her own daughter, and she's looking out for her just like any parent would look out for their children. Right? And she's seeking Ruth's happiness, Ruth's security uh, through marriage to a godly individual who has already shown that he cares. Right? And that's probably why Boaz's name is being brought out here because Naomi knows Boaz is a man of substance. Boaz 
unlike all these other people during the time of the judges, loves God and wants to follow after God. So let's go with Boaz. Now, Naomi's plan is interesting because she wants Ruth to approach Boaz after he has been satisfied with his meal. So it's kind of like what we'll be doing uh, next week on Thursday, Friday, whenever you have your Thanksgiving meals, right? After you've had uh, a good amount of food and, uh, and whatnot, you know, what happens? Food coma, right? It's essentially, uh, this is kind of what she's saying. She's like, hey, wait till Boaz is pretty much done with dinner and he's ready to go to sleep. Note where he's sleeping and go uncover his feet and lie down over there. Right? But that's kind of weird. Why is that necessary? Well, because of the boldness of this proposition, Naomi wants to make sure that the time and setting was right for Boaz to consider whether he would marry Ruth. So the fact that he would be full uh, and satisfied would probably be a good time to ask him a very important question. Or you don't want to ask him while he's uh, busy working or or whatnot. You want him in a good mood, right? And and when he falls asleep, most likely after he's eaten, he'll be satisfied. He'll be in a good mood. Um, and you know, this is after all a life changing proposition, right? If if you want to ask someone to marry you, you are asking them to basically be ready for life change, right? Significant life change. If you think that marrying someone means, oh, well, we live together, but I basically get to live however I want to, uh, whenever I want to. Uh, it's just that I have a permanent roommate that's of the opposite gender now. Um, well, no, that's not what marriage is. Okay, so if, that is your, if that's what's in your mind in terms of what the marriage relationship looks like, get that out. That's not what it is. Okay, it's life-changing. Um, you know, we understand that it's life-changing, Right? And we understand the significance of planning and, and thinking and setting up the, the, the scene well when it comes to a marriage proposal. Because right? when men pop the question to their girlfriends, the proposals that catch our eyes are usually the proposals that reflect the most thought and planning. Right? Those are the ones that make you go, oh, isn't that sweet? Oh, wow. That guy, he's got he's to go on. Like, he, he, he planned really, really well. Right? He knows his girl. She is so lucky. Right? On the other hand, you, it could catch your eye if it was absolutely awful, right? Like he like proposes on a boat in the middle of a storm and the ring goes away. And it's like, oh no, right? Or, um, or if you know this reference, um, uh, well, I, anyway, never mind. But, <laughs> right? but, you know, unless there's a good reason for it, unless there's a good reason for it, you want to plan well. When you propose, okay, you want to plan well. It's unlikely a woman's going to be pleased by a proposal in which she has to drive herself in the driving rain to a gas station, and then the guy asks her to marry him at the gas station in the pouring rain, right? She is not going to be impressed. Uh, and it might work on TV, but it doesn't mean that it's a good idea, okay? So, though we would think that there's probably a better way for this to happen, because I was even thinking as I was studying this, couldn't they have just, like, done this in the middle of the day, right? Why do they have to do this at night um, in, in a more public place? Why couldn't they do it, like, Boaz comes over to Ruth and Naomi's house and, and whatnot? I don't know why that didn't happen, right? But it appears that Naomi does understand that this is an unusual but very bold request, and it requires a little more privacy. And perhaps what she was doing was giving room for Boaz and Ruth not to have these matters known publicly uh, should Boaz refuse to marry Ruth. And the cover of night would at least allow for this to happen um, 
uh, with relative privacy. And, you know, if uh, Ruth goes home uh, kind of disappointed, it, it, you know, it's, it's not so bad. She can, she can run home. Um, anyway, what we see in verse 5 is Ruth, the faithful daughter, she doesn't object. Right? It appears that she knows that what Naomi is doing is seeking after her good, so she agrees. And she's like, I'm going to do what you tell me to do. Now, I'm sure many of you are wondering, how, how does this apply to us? Right? Is, is this a dating sermon? How can this possibly apply to us? Uh, no, this is not a dating sermon, by the way. Uh, that's not my goal. Um, the hope, though, was present for Ruth um, and Naomi once God brought Boaz into their lives. Right? Is that God was going to provide at least temporarily, through Boaz. And knowing this, right, knowing that there is some hope that Boaz represents uh, some good things for their family, Naomi, she's acting according to that hope. She has absolutely no guarantee that Boaz will even be willing to marry Ruth. And that's why last week I, I, I emphasized so strongly that we don't even know whether he liked her when he was being nice to her, right? Because we don't know. At this point, we have no idea whether Boaz likes Ruth. We have no idea when he saw her that he had all the butterflies going around in his head and in his gut. And he was like, wow, I want to marry that girl. We have no idea. Right? So we, we don't know. But there was hope. There was hope that perhaps Boaz could be someone significant. Right? Yeah, he is nice to her. He's cared for her a lot, but, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that he likes her. It doesn't necessarily mean that he'll agree to marrying her. I mean, he's been single all this time, but does he actually want to, uh, to be married? Now, regardless, regardless, Naomi and Ruth, even with this uncertainty, are, act in hope. They act in hope that Boaz will be the one through whom Ruth will be cared for uh, for as long as they shall live. Because they know, they know that no matter what, whether Boaz says no or whether Boaz says yes, that God's going to provide for them. But because they don't know which one it's going to be, they're still preparing, anticipating that God at least will make something clear. It's either going to be a yes or a no. All right? Now, when it comes to how this applies to us, Naomi's and Ruth's response to the hope that God gives them is actually incredibly instructive and applicable for us because it reminds us that we too are to prepare in anticipation for what God has for us in our lives. If you are uh, experiencing trial and difficulty in your life right now, and you have no idea whether or when or even if God's going to deliver you from this disruption in your life, where's your hope? Is it in things getting better and returning to normal? Or is your hope in the God who sustains no matter what the outcome might be. Right? Even if you don't know the answer to that question, that's okay. Because the, more, the most important thing is how are you going to prepare yourself for when the answer does come? Whether it's yes, whether it's no. How are you going to respond? You should have an idea of how you're going to respond if it's positive and if it's negative. Will you be ready to respond in a way that pleases God no matter what? you want happens or if it doesn't happen you need to have that response ready think of it this way next week thanksgiving right? a lot of thanksgiving meals maybe some friends giving uh, uh, sprinkled in there too right? if you have 
a hopeful opportunity to share the gospel with a family member or a friend, whether it's during Thanksgiving, whether it's Christmas, whatever, or how are you going to prepare for that opportunity? You know that that's there. You know that the opportunity for you, the hope for you to be able to have a gospel conversation is going to be there. So how are you going to prepare for that? Because some of us have said in the past, myself included, oh, I'm just going to wait for the right opportunity to come up so that I can share the gospel with my family or friend. And yet, when the opportunities come, uh, well, I don't know, now's not really a good time. We're, you know, we're in the middle of a good conversation. I don't really want to break out the gospel right now. It just doesn't seem appropriate, right? And then it's just like, uh, you know what? Maybe next, maybe during Christmas because, you know, right now it's just not a good idea. I'll see them during Christmas. Maybe Christmas will be a better time for this conversation. But what if, what if you did have a rare moment of one-on-one time with a family member? Do you have some sort of plan? to actually, like, turn that conversation to a gospel conversation? Or are you just going to be like, ah, you know, I'll see you in a few weeks. So uh, we're not going to talk about the gospel, right? We can have plans, right? But even if things don't go according to plan, and they probably won't, right? At least you have an idea of what you're going to do to share the gospel with your family member or friend, right? So plan ahead. Think about it. What are you going to do if you have that opportunity? How are you going to use just regular conversation to turn to the gospel. I, I did this with my grandma um, when, when she wasn't saved, and I was thinking about, like, how do I turn conversations with my grandma into a gospel conversation? My grandma loves the news, loves it, news junkie. And so there were times where she would be talking to me about how awful things are in the world, and uh, you know, my grandma does speak pretty good English, so I'm blessed in that way. So basically, I was able to say, like, yeah, that's right. That is awful, Grandma. Do you know why that's awful? It's because of sin. And then you know, just go on and on, um, right? But, like, it's not smooth. I never said I was smooth. You can ask Stacy. I'm not smooth. Um, but that's, you know, I was just thinking, like, I need to get the gospel to my grandma. Right? And how am I going to do that? Um, and, okay, fine. Quickly, if you hope. That one day, God will provide a spouse for you. Don't just say, God is sovereign, and I'll be okay. They will come, and I will know. Um, right? He is not going to give you that Disney connection. You're not going to feel the sparks. Well, not, not likely to feel the sparks. Right? So what are you going to do? How are you going to prepare? Well, here's what I would say. Work hard not Work hard not only in growing in godliness and maturity, but also do your best to understand what a godly marriage looks like and what it is for. Okay, you think you know what it's for, but study it. Study it according to the Bible. Do you know what marriage is for? Do you understand what a realistic marriage looks like? Do you understand that? And are you growing to be the man or the woman that God wants you to be so that when the time comes, you can get married. And you're not thinking, oh, no, now I'm responsible for somebody? Oh, I got to get my act together. No, do that ahead of time. Do that ahead of time. If we have time, we'll go through more of this later, but we don't have time, so we're we're moving on. Yes, God is sovereign, okay? God is sovereign, but it doesn't mean that you just sit around waiting for God to do work and to drop something in your lap because that's not how he works. Right, that's not how he always works anyway. And so as we prepare in, anticipa- in anticipation of the fulfillment of the hope God gives, we don't just sit around 
waiting for God to do something because he already is doing something. God wants us to act, therefore, according to the hope that he provides, which brings us to the second response to God's provision of hope, which is the response of godly action, the response of godly action. Now, many of us who say that we believe God is sovereign are really tempted just to let things play out, right? thinking that whatever happens next, that's God's will. And that can be true sometimes. But sometimes God also works through our actions just like he will through Naomi and Ruth's actions. Verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. It happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward. And behold, a woman was lying at his feet. So Ruth, when she does what Naomi says, she washes up, she anoints herself, she goes down to the threshing floor, and once Boaz goes to sleep, once he's eaten, he's well content, fades off uh, to sleep on his grain pile, she uncovers his feet and lies down. Now, sometime in the middle of the night, you know, he wakes up, and uh, you know, some people have said, oh, he wakes up because she uncovered his feet. And so he's probably cold because he's sleeping outside-ish. So it's probably because he was cold. But it could also be that he was sleeping, right? And she's lying at his feet. So it could be that he, you know, jerked or something and, and, or, like, turned and hit her. And he's like, oh, what is that? Right? We don't know. The text doesn't say what happened. Right? But we know, in either case, around midnight, Boaz wakes up. And, he, and look at that chance language there, too, right? And behold... A woman is lying at his feet. It's like, whoa, where did she come from? And of course, you know, if you were Boaz, you would be thinking, whoa, where did she come from? Right? He was in his right mind before he went to sleep. He wasn't drunk. He was in his right mind. He was just content, you know, just maybe food coming a little bit. He was by himself when he went to sleep. All of a sudden, he wakes up. He's like, what is this? Who is this? Ah, what, what is going on here? Right? There's a stranger at my feet. That's startling, isn't it? And you, you have to remember, too, Boaz is a man of good reputation. He's a godly man. And so all of a sudden, you have a godly man with a strange woman at his feet. And you're just like, uh-oh, what happened? Right? What happened? Especially if someone came by and saw that. And they're like, oh, no, what is this? Right? And so um, yeah, there's probably a little bit of panic going on in, in Boaz's mind. And so he's, you know, he's like, who are you? Now, as we know, reading this account, this is not chance, right? She is not an ordinary woman. It's Ruth, right? But, of course, he's not expecting her. Um, but um, there she is. There she is. And, you know, Ruth, she is acting upon the hope of security and peace that she and Naomi believe is going to come from God through Boaz. And so that's why she's there. Boaz is just kind of like, oh, hello, what's going on here? Right? Now, look at how... Ruth identifies herself to Boaz because he says, who are you? And she answers and she says, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid for you are a close relative. The first thing that we notice is that Ruth, she identifies herself as one of Boaz's maids. That doesn't really raise our attention too much because we're just like, well, yeah, she is a maid, right? So why would we, uh, why would we stop here? But previously... Back in chapter 2, verse 13, Ruth identifies herself as 
one of Boaz's maid servants. Right? And this is in the speech where she's like, whoa, why are you, giving, why are you so kind to me? Why are you um, giving me all of these benefits that don't even go to, uh, to, your, uh, to your slave servants? Why are you giving me these like, basically worker benefits when I'm just a widow um, exercising my right to scavenge, essentially? Right? So she calls herself a maid servant. We don't really distinguish between these two words in English, right? But in Hebrew, there is actually a drastically different meaning. The word previously used in 2.13 is usually designated for the lowest rank of female service. That is the slave girl, right? The word that she uses here in chapter 3 is a little more elevated. It's a, it's a word that describes a higher rank of servant, one who could actually be taken as a wife. So not only, right, so remember, Boaz is used to seeing Ruth in her widow's clothes. Now he wakes up, she's at his feet, and she's not wearing her widow's clothes. And not only does she stop calling herself a maid servant, she calls herself a maid. So Ruth demonstrates her readiness for marriage, readiness to move on by switching her clothes and by thinking of herself in a different way as well. And so... She asks him, when she asks him here, so spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative, what she's saying here is, hey, Boaz, remember what you said to me like a few weeks back? Remember when you gave me those kind words and you said to me that I found refuge under the wings of Yahweh? Remember that, Boaz? Can you spread your wings? your covering over me too. Right, will you mirror, Boaz, what God has done for me by being a part of the wing of Yahweh that covers me? Isn't that incredible? That's incredibly romantic. That's incredibly sweet. She's saying, yes, God is kind, and you are one of God's kindnesses to me. Will you be that for me? Will you be my security? Will you be my covering? Right? That's incredibly romantic, incredibly, incredibly beautiful. And when she does this, too, right, she, she counters this in this idea of the reason why she's asking for this covering is because Boaz is a close relative. Naomi only wanted Ruth to be secure through marriage. She didn't care necessarily whether, uh, whether Boaz raised up children for her son. She didn't care about that. She didn't care about necessarily the fa her family line to continue. She just wanted to make sure Ruth was okay. Ruth kind of goes beyond that and says, will you redeem me and will you raise up a family for my mother? Right? Will you raise up sons for my dead husband? And we'll talk about that more uh, next week. But uh, she goes beyond it. She says, hey, redeem me, right? Because you're a close relative. Not just, uh, don't just marry me, but redeem me according to the law. And that's different. And Boaz, uh, his response also so incredibly uh, beautiful. He says, may you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have, shown your, you have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. That first kindness 
that Boaz is talking about here is, the, is an act of loyal love. And Boaz is referring to how Ruth stayed with Naomi and, and turned to Yahweh, even though she had to say goodbye to everything that she had ever known. Or she left behind everything that she had ever known. And she went, she cleaved herself to Naomi and cleaved herself to Yahweh. That was her first act of loving kindness. That was her first um, act of uh, that Hesed love. This latest kindness, of course, refers to Ruth's request for Boaz to marry her. And what we see here is that she could have asked anyone. Because right? he said, instead of going after the young men, right? which also kind of gives us a, a clue that Boaz is probably a little bit more, uh, is a little older than, than Ruth and uh, probably maybe even a little significantly over, older than Ruth. And so he's saying, your kindness to me by coming after me rather than going to these young men is incredible because you didn't have to come through me. Because remember, all that Naomi wanted was for Ruth to get married. She wasn't necessarily interested uh, or thinking about her family line continuing. And so that's why, that's why Ruth was free to marry whoever she wanted. And so Boaz is saying, wow, thank you for considering me because that, that is such a loving kindness um, you could have gone to anybody. Right? And she calls, she, even though Ruth calls Boaz a redeemer, he's not technically the one responsible for raising up a family for her, hus- for her dead husband. She could have married anybody. And, you know, if Boaz was obligated to, to redeem Ruth, we would have expected him to do so already, right? He's proven himself to be a godly man, a man of integrity, so he probably would have done it already. He didn't. And not only that, but Ruth probably could, uh, well, Ruth did have the legal right, according to Deuteronomy 25, to, fall, to call Boaz out, right? To bring him in front of the elders and say, hey, this guy doesn't want to, doesn't want to extend his, the family. He doesn't want to fulfill his obligation to, um, to his family member. She doesn't do that because that's not, what, that's not the condition that's here. Right? So she simply requests for him to be her husband, to redeem her. So verse 11 he says, Boaz continues, and he says, Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. Now, it is true. I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Though Boaz wants to marry Ruth and vice versa, there is a slight problem, a slight complication to this request. If Boaz is going to marry Ruth as a redeemer as a redeemer specifically, so that he can raise up descendants for Malon and take care of the property that belonged to Elimelech, another relative must be given the chance to redeem Ruth and the land first. Right? And that's why it's so, that's why what Ruth asks is actually so important because she triggers the legal aspect of this, right? And despite this complication though, Boaz, he wants to take care of Ruth because he loves her, right? And so, um, so he's, he's saying to her, he, he wants to do it, right? And, and, um, and uh, he, he even says the reason why he likes her, right? The reason why he likes her is because they know she is a woman of excellence. She's a woman of great reputation. And um, because he knows it's late and it's not safe, um, he says in verse 13, remain this night, and when morning comes, uh, if this relative who's closer, then I will redeem you. Good, let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives to lie down until morning. So Boaz understands it's the middle of the night and uh, it's not wise for Ruth to go back on the road. There might be robbers and thieves out there. It's, it's also just really, really dark, right? So he says, don't go home. Just stay here. 
Uh, and, you know, knowing that, um, knowing that this other relative could choose to redeem Ruth, Boaz, he's watching out for her. He's protecting her because he understands, even though I really, really want to marry you, right? You're not mine yet. You're not mine. You could be someone else's. So I'm just going to make sure that you're safe, that you're cared for, right? That's because that's how much he loves Ruth. Um, but, you know, also notice the certainty of his intention. If that other relative chooses not to redeem Ruth, Boaz promises as Yahweh lives that he will redeem and marry Ruth. He didn't need to say that. Right? He could have just said, you know, if, if the other guy doesn't want to marry you, I'm going to marry you. And he could have just left it at that. Right? And that would have been fine. That would be a good promise. But he says, as Yahweh lives. Does Yahweh live? Right? Does God live? Absolutely he does, right? He won't die. That's an incredible, that's the, that's the intensity and the, uh, and the um, yeah, that's the intensity of Boaz's intention to marry Ruth. He wants to marry her so bad. He's basically saying, as sure as God lives, I will marry you, right? That's really, really sure. Um, and uh, I mean, that's just, it's just such a beautiful exchange between Ruth and Boaz, right? And it really just emphasizes, and just kind of going back and looking at our application, it emphasizes the importance of Christians to respond to the hope that God provides us with actions that please him, right? If we anticipate that God's going to do something um, in our lives, we have to respond. Ruth, she anticipated God was going to do something in her life. She had no idea whether Boaz was going to say yes, whether Boaz was going to say no, but she acts faithfully, knowing that God is going to use her actions to bring about his will for her life. Boaz, on the other hand, you can see how desperately he wants to marry Ruth. He acts honorably, even though he really, really wants to marry her, right? He really wants to marry her, but he also understands, hey, I, I really want to marry you, but this other guy over here, this other close relative, he actually needs to be given the chance first. Right? If it were you and me, we'd probably just be like, well, I want what I want, so I'm going to take it. Right? But Boaz is like, no, no, I can't do that. I understand what is in the law, and I'm going to do what pleases God first. He risks losing Ruth to this other relative. Right? All it takes is the other relative to be like, yeah, sure, I'll marry her for the land, and then, like just completely neglect her. And Boaz would have had nothing but he risked it because he wanted to follow and honor after God, even though he really wanted to marry Ruth. We are called to act upon our faith according to God's way. Right? Just because it seems like God is going to allow us to get what we've been hoping for, what we've been longing for, does not mean that he wants us to pursue our hopes, to pursue our dreams, no matter what the cost. Or you might have gotten an acceptance letter to that grad school that you've always wanted to go to. It's been your dream to go to that grad school. And you're like, wow, God is so kind. But it's going to put you in a $100,000 debt. And it's far away. And there are no good churches in the area. It looks good. But should you go? The Asian part of you is like, heck yeah, I should go. Right? Why shouldn't I go? I gotta go. Right? But is that what's wise? Is that what God wants? Is that what's going to please him? Does he want us to pursue at all costs 
what we want. Boaz wants to marry Ruth, but he knows, he knows that he has to do what's right before God first. We don't know why he is still single. He's on the older side. He's extremely attracted to Ruth because of her proven godly character, and yet he's willing to do what's right first. He's willing to do what's right first because he wants to do right by family. He wants to do right by Ruth. And most importantly, he wants to do right by God. Now, once we've done all that we can to please God in our pursuit of the opportunities that he kind of lays before us or gives us, there's only one thing that we can do left. It's to wait. And that's the third response to God's provision of hope, which is the response of patiently waiting. The response of patiently waiting. Verse 14. So she lay at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Again, he said, give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So she held it and he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. And then she went into the city. Knowing that they could do nothing else until morning at least, Ruth and Boaz decide that they're just going to stay there. And so Boaz goes back to sleep. Ruth at least tries to go to sleep, and she's lying at his feet. Okay, so there's nothing uh, unsavory going on. She's at his feet. He's, you know, it's like a T. Um, she's at his feet, and he's just lying down, and, um, and you know, they're asleep. Um, whether or not she actually was able to get to go to sleep or whether or not Boaz was able to get to sleep is, you know, completely different issue because I'm sure with all these scenarios going on in their minds, there's probably like a million things going on there, right? Uh, But uh, in in either case, or whatever it is, um, uh, Ruth was at the feet of Boaz until the early morning. Uh, And this is not like when the sun's about to come up, right? It says she, she woke up so early and she left so early that it was before anyone could recognize each other. Right, so if you've been up this early, it's pro- we're probably talking about like 4 or 5 in the morning, something like that. Because um, that's how dark it is. Um, you can't you know, recognize the people. There's no street lights to make everything nice and lit. So uh, you, can't, you can't really see anything. But it's much safer than midnight. Right? So anyway, Boaz is saying, hey, before anyone can, can see you, before anyone knows that you were even here, you, you should go home. Right? And it's not because they're trying to cover anything up. It's not because they're, they did anything wrong. But Boaz wants to protect Ruth's integrity. Remember, he said that Ruth is a woman of excellence. But as we've seen oh so often, right, you can have an excellent reputation, but it can be ruined in a moment. Right? All it takes is one compromise, one act of compromise, and you're done. One act of compromise, and you're done. That's what Boaz understands. And so... What he's saying is, we've done nothing. We're absolutely innocent before God. Right? But you need to go home before anyone knows. Because if someone says anything about your character, remember, back then, if you were caught in, in uh, immoral relationships before marriage, you could die. Right? By the law, you get stoned. That's not good for anybody. Right? And so um, Boaz is protecting her te- integrity. He's protecting her and. Um, he doesn't want her to be, to be known as a harlot, so he says, hey, you got to go before anyone sees you. Right, but, before, but before you go, hold out your cloak. I'm going to give you some food. Okay? And uh, we'll see more um, for this later, but Ruth holds out her cloak. He gives her six scoops, probably, of, uh, of barley, and it's 
um, probably about 60 to 100 pounds. Remember, this girl is strong. She can do whatever she wants, right? Um, but, uh, yeah, 60 to 100 pounds and, uh, of barley, and she's just kind of holding it in her cloak, going home like this, right? And so, um, anyway, uh, she goes back home. Verse 16, when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did it go, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her. She said, these, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then she said, wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. As can be expected, you know, Naomi knows what she did. She knows what she instigated. So she's waiting for Ruth, and when, she, when Ruth comes home, she's asking, hey, how'd it go? Um, it's actually kind of funny in the Hebrew. She doesn't ask how did it go or um, what happened. She asks, who are you? And you're just like, that's so strange. Why would you say, who are you? Because you know who it is. You know it's Ruth. Right? You saw her coming. So why are you saying, who are you? And essentially, what Naomi is asking is, so are you his wife? <laughs> right? Are you his wife? Did it work? That's kind of like, what is your state? Are you engaged now? That's kind of why she's saying, who are you? But essentially, what she's asking is, you know, what happened? What happened? And, you know, it's really interesting. Sometimes the author will tell us what the exchange between uh, the, the characters are, but he doesn't. He just gives us a summary statement, and she and basically it says, well, Ruth told, her, her, uh, Ruth told Naomi everything that happened. It's like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> what do we do with that? Um, but interesting enough, the, the, what uh, Ruth does tell Naomi is really interesting. Um, she tells Naomi, or at least what we see here, is an explanation for the six measures of barley. You're probably thinking, they have like a ton of, bar- of barley left over from, uh, from the barley harvest because Ruth brought home close to 100 pounds on her own on the first day. So they probably have a ton of barley. So what does it matter that she has these six scoops of, of, of barley? Well, these six scoops represent a promise from Boaz. When Naomi returned home to Bethlehem, she said that she had returned home empty-handed. What does Boaz say? He says, don't go home to your mother-in-law empty-handed. What we have here from Boaz is he remembers the words that Naomi has said, and he's showing through the barley, through these six scoops. It's not significant. It's not, you know, compared to what Ruth had gleaned already, but he's giving Naomi and giving Ruth as a symbol and pledge the barley. And he's saying he's going to do everything that he can to make sure that they're going to be cared for, whether that's through him marrying Ruth or whether that's through the other relative marrying Ruth. And so Naomi, she understands this gesture. She understands what that means. And so she tells Ruth to wait. Or she tells Ruth to wait because she understand, because she knows that Boaz, or she says, the man will not rest until he has settled it, not next week, not a month from now, today, right, today. And so Ruth waits. It's probably a really agonizing wait, but she waits. You know, one of the hardest things to do when we're eagerly anticipating what we've been hoping for is to wait for God to reveal the rest of his plans. As God calls us to trust him, we respond in faith, knowing that whatever his plans for us could give us what we want, 
but it could also not give us what we want. But regardless, whatever his plans are, he's going to be faithful to see it through. Right? He'll be, he will certainly bring it to pass. We're not promised a particular outcome. Sometimes we will seemingly fail. And by seemingly, I mean you will fail, but that's in your eyes. Right? In your eyes, you failed. But what you have to remember is that even our failures, and I use those air quotes on purpose, right? even our failures cannot disrupt God's plans. Okay? I need you to hear me on that. Our failures cannot disrupt God's plans. You might have messed up really, really bad. Right? Things might have just, the, wagon, the wheels on the wagon just fell off completely. Right? And maybe not even just the wheels, the doors and everything else fell out too. Right? You're a me- it's a mess. It's like you, know, you stepped on a Lego car and everything's in shambles all over the place. Right? It, your failure could be that catastrophic. It could be that bad. But your failure cannot disrupt God's plans. If you fail, there's no need for you to be discouraged. There's no need for you to lose heart. There's no need for you to think that all is lost. Because the only wise God who made you and loves you. He's in command. Nothing escapes his notice and nothing that will happen in the course of human history will surprise him. He's not going to be like, oh, whoa, I wasn't expecting that. (laughs) You're coming to faith? Whoa, I didn't expect that. No, he knows. He has sovereignly ordained from the beginning of time what will happen. Actually, even before the beginning of time because he's eternal. He knows what you and I will do. He knows the choices that we're going to make. He knows we're going to fail. And yet, even though he knows these things, he still works through the details and he still gets what he plans. You think about it, you think about it this way, right? Satan knows what the scripture says. He knows what the Old Testament said and he was trying really, really hard, right? He tried really hard to get Jesus off that cross, He tried so hard. Didn't work, right? And then now when the rest of the New Testament comes in, Satan knows how the rest of that, uh, of the story ends. He knows where he's going to go. And no matter what he does, he's not going to win, right? He tries really, really hard. And he works really, really hard. And yet, even though people will fail us, even though we will succumb to temptation at times, God's plan's not derailed. God is still going to win. We know at the very end, God wins out. He wins out completely. And so your failure, don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. Rather think, how can I respond to this? What does God want me to do? What does God want me to learn? Because there's more, right? There's more than I can see going on right here. I know God's sovereign. I know he's doing something. And so instead of just feeling sorry for myself, I need to think about what God is doing and how he wants his plan to unfold. God knows what you and I will do. He allows us to make our own choices. He allows us to fall on our face. And he does that so that we can learn so we can learn to love him, so we can learn to trust him, so that we can learn about our own selves and our own sinfulness, 
and so that we can comfort and encourage others who encounter similar difficulties. And it's for that reason we can't get so narrowly focused in on ourselves and, our, and, our, and what's going on in our lives. But we must patiently wait upon God, knowing that he will not fail to bring about his will. We might fail, but God never fails. And right? you know that. You've heard that. We don't know the particulars of God's will, just like Ruth and Naomi have no idea at this time. Right? They're sitting at home. They're waiting for news. We, they have no idea whether Ruth is going to marry Boaz or whether she's going to marry this other kinsman. But either way, they know it's in God's hands. So they sit, so they wait. And just as they sit and wait, so we shall wait. Hope is a flimsy word for us. Right? But when it comes to those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ and turned away from their sins, hope doesn't have to be a flimsy word. Those of us who have believed in Jesus Christ, we have in Christ, in God, an anchor for our souls. And if our hope is anchored in him, right, if our hope is anchored in him, then our hope is in something concrete, yes? So even if all of our circumstances are crazy around us, it's shifting, it's changing. He will not move. And so our hope is secure in him. So that we can have confidence that he loves us. Right? That we can have confidence that even if whatever we want, whatever we long for, right, even if that goes away, that, we can, that all is not lost. This evening, we've looked at the response of the hopeful as Naomi and Ruth trusted God to take care of them, and they acted upon that hope. Through their example, we learned that those who place their, their hope in God, they will prepare in anticipation for what he might do. Because we don't know what he's going to do, so we have to prepare for it. And those who place their hope in God, they will respond with God-honoring actions when the time is right. And those who put their hope in God will patiently wait upon God for the results. And even though we may not necessarily get the results that we want, we trust that whatever God is doing, he's doing for our ultimate good. We won't, um, you know, we like Alex said earlier, we're not going to have a... Uh, a Bible study time as a fellowship group um, next week, so it'll be two weeks before we can return to uh, Naomi and Ruth, and um, it'll be a while before we see what happens to them, and if you want to jump ahead and read Ruth 4, I encourage you to do that, um, but we're going to have to wait to, to see what happens to them, and uh, as we wait, though, to hear the conclusion of this story, to understand how God has been working through the ordinary to accomplish his plan, to get the right king to the throne, and ultimately, through that right king, bring us to Jesus. Um, let us take some time to think about how we can similarly respond to what we've studied here tonight, what, what we've seen God doing in the lives of his people. And, and let's, let's try our best to respond well to what God has brought into our lives. Or whatever he's brought into your life, whether it's good or whether it's bad, he brought it into your life for a reason, for a purpose. So it's not, it's not useless. It's not meaningless. It's not something that you should despise. It's something that 
uh, we willingly embrace and welcome into our lives so that we can see what God wants for us. And so may we continue to respond well um, so that God may be glorified and, and honored in our lives. And um, that would be an especially important thing for us to think about next week uh, as we celebrate Thanksgiving and think about all the good things that God has brought into our lives. Let's pray. Our Father, as we are um, thinking about what you've done in the lives of, of Ruth and Naomi, we are so grateful for how they, they model for us what your people ought to do when we've been given an opportunity to hope. That we should not just sit around and just say that you're sovereign and you'll take care of it, but acting upon the opportunities that you've given us, we are to respond in faith or to act, or to do something. And after we do something, we wait upon you. And so we pray that, Lord, you would help us to, to, know, to, to know this in an even more real way in our lives. And, and we pray that you would help us to actually live this out, to not keep this up in our, in our brains as something that uh, will come into play maybe sometime later if we have to counsel someone. But this is actually how you want us to respond to what you bring into our lives, not just to leave it in the, in the realm of the academic. We pray, Father, that you would increase our trust in you, you would increase our dependence upon you, and most of all, Lord, that you would increase our love for you so that we can place our trust in you for a good reason, not because we have to, but because we want to, because we know for sure that you are doing something because we know who you are because we know how strong you are because we know what you have done we know that uh, we can um, absolutely love you more no matter what the circumstances are so we pray that you would bless our time uh, now as we turn to fellowship and uh, as we uh, even just uh, seek to put some thought into what we've learned this evening uh, it's your sons that we pray amen